All right, good morning, everyone. It's good to be back. It seems like a long time, one, since I've been up here, but two, since I've even been at the center, I've been on the run. I don't know what from, but uh, moving around from place to place. I went up to, uh, to Providence and had a great time up there uh, talking with the devotees and just spending a weekend thinking about these things and trying to move our spiritual lives forward and uh, had a delightful time with them. I don't know if you've ever been to that center. Uh, they've got a new temple up there and a great Swami, Swami Yogatmananda. Really, really wonderful Swami to be around. Just so, just so full of love, so unassuming, so very sweet and, uh, and uh, always accommodating, always trying to make you comfortable and uh, be there. And it shows in, his, in the devotees there, they're very much the same way. So go see uh, your brothers and sisters in Providence uh, by the way, it's a great town, too. It's a very pretty town, which I didn't know. And uh, then we were in Boston for a short lecture with Swami Tyagananda, and I could say all the same things there. Beautiful centers, and uh, well worth going and visiting, or if you're just up in those areas, to stop in and say hi to the rest of the family up there. When I was there, we talked about the, many of the same things we talk about here, and uh, tried to accomplish pretty much the same thing that we are uh, trying to do here, to, uh, to see some of these truths, to understand them, to take them deeper. And when we started, we started in the same way, to remember the three most important things. And uh, hopefully you have it memorized by now, but uh, I'm gonna repeat it again because I, I forget. And uh, <laughs> I always need to go back to those. Takur, when he was asked, what is the most important thing? He responded that sincerity and earnestness in your practice and in your attempts to know God, uh, your attempts to, to understand existence, is the most important thing. And he said it's the most important thing because if you have those two elements, God personally takes responsibility for moving you along. And uh, even if you make a wrong turn, uh, he or she will ensure that you get turned in the right direction, will take, take care of you, take that responsibility on. And that's a great thing, because it makes it much more relaxing for us on this end, you know, uh, to be experimental, to be investigative in our spiritual lives, to try new things, to try different things, to ask unique questions, to, to try different approaches, and not to have to worry that if we take the wrong one or do something wrong that we're gonna end up uh, you know, on a sunken ship for that. So uh, Mother gives us some permission to kind of move around, to kind of flex our elbows and to try different things because she's taking care of it. She will show you the fruit of those things and move you in that right direction. So it's a commitment to each other this morning on my part and on your part and within ourselves to have that earnestness and that sincerity of heart uh, as we go forward this morning. And then the second one is very much like it from Jesus. When he was asked, what is the most important commandment? He said to love God, to love God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, and with all of your strength. And he said the second one is very much like it, to love your neighbor as you love yourself. And putting those things together, we understand in Vedanta that they are one and the same, that your love of one another is your love of God, your service of one another is your service of the divine, and your love of yourself is also that same service of the divine. And then the final one is back to Takur, and I always, I always like imagery of Takur. He was just so childlike, and I can just see him sitting on a big rock by the side of the Ganges, kind of kicking his feet a little bit, and you know, thinking about the divine, and of course he was always just a radiant smile. Every description you ever get of him in the gospel is of him sitting there beaming, or smiling, or in samadhi, thinking of the divine. So I see him sitting there on the banks, and he's, you know, doing his practice, and he's throwing out the, the opposites in the world, you know, discriminating, trying to, to understand the world so that it doesn't pull him in the wrong direction, so he doesn't misunderstand something, so he doesn't get trapped and suffer for it. So he's throwing away these pairs of opposites. He's telling mother, you know, here's your good and here's your bad, take them both. I just want pure love for you. You know, he says, take, the, take rich, take poor, just all of them, you know. They only mention a few in the scriptures, but you know he could be there for a while doing that. And he came to truth, and he tried to throw out truth and untruth. And uh, he says, mother wouldn't let him. She stopped his hand, wouldn't let him throw uh, truth and untruth into the Ganges, because truth is fundamental. 
That's what we're after. We want to know what is this? What is life about? Uh, who are we? What are we? What, what is this life for? And answer those questions. And that's where we're going to jump in this morning after I read my, my tribute to Hafiz. He says, just sit there. Just sit right there where you are right now. Don't do a thing. Just rest. Because your separation from God is the hardest work you will ever have in this world. Let me bring you some trays of food, something that you like to drink. You can use my soft words as a cushion for your head. Just sit there right now. Don't do a thing. Just rest. Because we're going to go and visit Mother in a strange way this morning because uh, we're going to look into jnana yoga in a way. The lecture title this morning uh, is called uh, The Death of Religion. And uh, it's completely, the talk turned out literally, I mean literally up until Wednesday I thought this talk was going to be one thing. And then on Wednesday, I sat in this room for a, a, a good meditation in the morning. And by the end of that meditation, this talk was completely different, had completely been thrown out the window and replaced. I, uh, uh, I'm not a big fan of religion. And when I say that, I mean in the way that it's thought of and used today. I mean, I, and I think, I think I have a pretty good case for why I'm, I'm literally disgusted with religion and with its role and effect in the world at this point. And um, from what I'm seeing online and from what I'm hearing from a lot of the folks that are a bit younger than I am, uh, they're feeling very much the same way. They want to pitch the whole thing out, just get rid of it. You know, it's full of judgment, it's full of, 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 of violence, it's, it's uh, you know, just small-minded and uh, anti-intellectual, anti-thinking, and uh, really has no value. But that's not what it was for. You know, that, that was not what religion was supposed to be uh, in the world, you know, despite it being that many times in history. I mean, we're, it's certainly not a fresh thing for it to have become that. And uh, by the end of this lecture, uh, hopefully we'll, we'll be bold enough to pitch it overboard, <laughs> to throw religion out and to come out and rediscover something new, something that's vital, something that's a part of life, something that's not in conflict with thinking and with investigating and uh, with an open and kind mind and heart. Vivekananda, he says, uh, when, he, when he kind of jumped in to the reason of religion, he says, why do we say that there's life, that there's being, that there's anything? There must be a meaning in all of this search this endeavor to understand life, to explain being. It is not meaningless and vain. It is man's ceaseless endeavor to become free. The knowledge which we now call science has been struggling for thousands of years in its attempt to gain freedom. People want to be free. So that's where religion started. It started as an open investigation. Science and religion were one and the same in the beginning. It was a quest to understand to know about the world around us, to know our place in it, to know what we were, to know who we were. But what happened? How did we go from that quest of freedom, that quest of knowledge, that, that investigation, that open search for the meaning of things, to, to a calcified, closed-door religion, full of laws, full of limitations, full of stuck uh, minds and stuck people, you know, full of judgments, <laughs> and you can'ts, and you shouldn'ts, and you aren'ts. What happened to, to, to that inspiration, that openness, that called for that oneness, that called for that love, that universal acceptance, that encouragement, that, that giving nature of things? Swamiji was very curious about this. He wrote a lecture called uh, Reason and Religion, where he kind of looks at the dichotomy that was, even in his day, 100 years ago, uh, was, was in full bloom and now is also in full bloom. This, this fight that's going on, uh, even I guess you could take it all the way back to the Middle Ages, to the Renaissance, you know, that, that fight between religion. Back then it was more between the Catholic Church and anybody else. But in general, this fight between intellectualism or, or knowledge 
and spiritual, spirituality or religion has been, has been going on. And he makes some great points about it. He goes into the sciences. He says, knowledge of the science covers, as it were, only part of our lives. But the knowledge which religion brings to us is eternal, as infinite as the truth it preaches. Claiming this superiority, religions have many times looked down, unfortunately, on the secular knowledge, and not only so, but many times have refused to be justified by the aid of secular knowledge. In consequence, all the world over there, all the world over, there have been fights between secular knowledge and religious knowledge, the one claiming infallible authority as its guide, refusing to listen to anything that secular knowledge has to say on the point, the other with its shining instruments of reason, wanting to cut to pieces everything religion could bring forward. This fight has been and is still waged in every country. What is this, science, this fight between science and religion everywhere? Religions are encumbered with such a mass of explanations which come from outside. One angel is in charge of the sun, another in the charge of the moon, and so on ad infinitum. Every change is caused by a spirit, the one common point of agreement being that they are all outside the thing. Science means that the cause of a thing is sought out by the nature of the thing itself. As step-by-step -step science is progressing, it has taken the explanation of natural phenomena out of the hands of spirits and angels. Because Advaitism has done likewise in spiritual matters, it is the most scientific religion. This universe has not been created by an extra-cosmic god, nor is it the work of an outside genius. It is self-creating self-dissolving, self-manifesting, one infinite existence, Brahman, Tatvamasi, thou art that. So he says several things here, and it's really true. I mean, you look online at, at uh, the reasons. Well, I'll, I'll go to my own experience. Why go online? Growing up, I grew up a fundamentalist Christian, and things were so because it was said that they were so. Uh, up until I was 18, I was very content with those answers. You know, if you ask two or three questions, you know that the ultimate answer to it was, God said so. <laughs> there were about three levels of why that you could ask safely. If you went beyond that, you would be saying, because God said so. If you went beyond that, you had a problem with your heart. There was something wrong with you. There was something impure in there, you. There was something uh, adulterated about you that you had to fix. So then you should go into a closet by yourself and think for a while. Go look at your heart a little more closely, see why there's so much doubt in you, see why, why you would question God like that. You know, and then that guilt would come and you'd begin to think, oh, God, there is something, there's something wrong with me, you know, because I just don't, I go to church and everybody's happy and everybody's singing and everybody's just going along and I'm just not really feeling that, you know, necessarily. I'm kind of feeling like, wow, <laughs> somehow I'm not like everybody else. And there's that isolated sense. So this, this, this forbidding of inquiry, you know, this, this insistence, this, again, going to outside of ourselves for our answer, that this God has said so and you will do it. It doesn't matter if it makes sense. It doesn't matter if it, if it flows in a logical order. It doesn't matter, uh, you know, if it, if it seems right to you. It, it is that way, period. Don't ask. And uh, Vivekananda wasn't okay with that. You know, Vivekananda asked questions. He, uh, he, he, he was blasphemous at times. Some of his teachings even are delightfully and satisfyingly blasphemous. You know, he says, and I, I consider his writing scripture just in my own personal world, and when I hear him say, it doesn't matter if you do something wrong, if you do it earnestly, you know, in desire, go forward, be bold in your investigation, you know, Trial and error, make it work, see if it works. If it doesn't work, try something else. If you don't like where you're at, pick up and go elsewhere. Such a freedom, such, such an invigorating, wonderful, open mind to understand and to find those things that fill your heart, that satisfy the mind, that give you a freedom to go deeper, a freedom to push on until you find an answer that you believe and can understand and be all right with, to be fearless in that way, to not be afraid, to find that truth that is eternal, that is, that is as infinite as religion intended it to be, as it started out. 
these one-sided arguments go on because of this narrow thinking, because of this cutting off of the intellect and this refusal to go deeper and to take care of the, the unanswered questions, we find that, that we have Christians claiming that this religion is the only one because it was revealed to so-and-so. And then we have the, the Islamic folk saying, no, this religion is, is right because such-and-such such said. And it goes on and on until we're a thousand little groups you know, fighting awfully violently around the world to make our case. God has become ugly. It has become an ugly word. That, and I find that even I have begun trying to find other words to talk about God. Because God brings to mind what? It brings to mind this terrorism. It brings to mind that small-mindedness. It brings to mind ignorance and stupid people, you know, who you don't want to be around. It, 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 it's just, it's just, it belongs outside the realm of, of civilized man, you know, civilized discussion. It's, a, it's, a, it's an artifact of yesterday, of an old world. It has no place here and now. And I was very content with that. I came up with words like the divine or, you know, and I like to talk about mother and I'll throw in he, she, or, you know, whatever it is because, because of that word God until this scripture or this verse from Vivekananda this week in Jnana Yoga, he said, I've been asked many times, why do you use that old word God? Because it is the best word for our purpose. You cannot find a better word than that because all the hopes, all the aspirations, and the happiness of humanity have been centered in that word. It is impossible now to change the word. Words like these were first coined by great saints who realized their import, understood their meaning. But as they became current in society, ignorant people take these words, and the result is that they lose their spirit and their glory. The word God has been used from time immemorial and the idea of this cosmic intelligence and all that is great and holy is associated with it. Do you mean to say that because some fool says that it is not all right that we should throw it away? Another man may come and say, oh, here, use my word. And another will say, no, take my word. And there will be no end of foolish words. Use the old word. Only use it in its true spirit. Cleanse it of superstitions and realize fully what this great and ancient word means. If you understand the power of the laws of association, you will know that these words are associated with innumerable, majestic, powerful ideas. They have been used and worshiped by millions of human souls and associated by them with all that is highest and best, all that is rational, all that is lovable, and all that is great and grand in human nature. We shouldn't settle and, 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 ta and take a turn in shame, you know, because, because of what religion has become in the minds of humanity, because of what God has become. We shouldn't, we shouldn't then inside shrink back even farther, you know, to, 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 to hide in even more shame because of that association. Vivekananda was about strength. Vivekananda was about truth, you know. Takor lived a life of bliss on the absolute forefront of integrity, talking about God all the time, having his visions, even though at the time Vivekananda himself was making fun of him and ridiculing him for having, for having those, those hallucinations of his mind, as he called them, and not being afraid to question them and ask him, you know, oh, did you see him? And even teasing him, like that time, that story about the Chatak bird that uh, Ramakrishna said he saw that, that <laughs> Even I have to chuckle, that idea, this bird that lives only in the sky, never comes down to the earth and only eats, you know, whatever, I mean, raises its young, lays its eggs up there in the stratosphere, and as the egg falls before it hits the ground, it hatches. And uh, Vivekananda one time was teasing Ramakrishna, oh, I saw one of your Chattuck birds today. And I was like, Ramakrishna, oh, yeah, did you really? Did you really? He says, yes, that's over there. He pointed some old crow. <laughs> you know? And, uh, and Takura was like, you, you rascal, that's only a crow. But he had that boldness, and he's calling us to that vision. Cleanse it of superstitions, though. Be what you want religion to be known for, <laughs> as it were. Claim it for yourself. Don't let, don't let the fools <laughs> that, that Vivekananda is talking about identify, who have, who have redefined these things into ugly and, and disgusting things, you know, things that don't make sense, things that are yesterday's idea. Be that person of vision. Live a life that's inspiring, that challenges those ideas, that say that's not God, that's not religion. 
That's not the point of, of, of my spiritual life. You know, it's not about smallness. I don't have pat answers to things. I'm in an active, ongoing investigation to know the truth. Because religion is higher. Religion is higher than that. It contains in it the greatest thoughts, the highest aspirations of mankind. It's boldly looking at the face of questions that are unanswerable. Where is the beginning? Where did I come from? Where am I going? What am I about? What makes life satisfying and worth living? What is the point? Religion is about those questions, about standing in the middle of the unknown and not grabbing pat answers to tuck under your arms to make yourself feel secure, but about having a platform and a place to stand in an effort to learn, giving you the tools to answer those questions, giving you practices through which thousands of years of sages have found answers to these inquiries, giving you the opportunity to try it for yourself and see. That's the glory of religion, not to hand you an answer that you have to accept, but to hand you the tools for you to find out for yourself, is this true? Is there a God? Do I need to worship? What is morality? What is the point of all of these rules? You know, are these things true? Giving you a safe place to stand and ask and go forward and figure it out on your own, to take nothing just because somebody else said so. Religion is intelligence. It's love, absolute. How did this happen? How did we come to a place like this where we have to justify something like religion, something as old and ancient as religion? How is it that it's come to a place where something as grand and beautiful as the idea of God has become something despised, something cast off? Vivekananda says, going back to his ideas on religion and science, he says, the physical sciences are better equipped now than ever, and religions have become less and less equipped. The foundations have been all undermined, and the modern man, whatever he may say in public, knows in the privacy of his heart that he can no more believe. Believing certain things because an organized body of priests tells him to believe, believing because it is written in certain books, believing because his people like him to believe, the modern man knows this is impossible for him. There are, of course, a number of people who seem to acquiesce to this so-called popular faith, but we also know for certain that they do not think. Their idea of belief may be better translated as not thinking carelessness. So we see that Vivekananda is not in favor of joining in just because it's the seemingly right thing to do, it's the comfortable thing to do. He's not asking anybody to believe, believes that it's impossible. Modern man, in the situation that we're in, it's irresponsible for us to believe something because it's written in a book or because somebody told us so or because the, 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 the flows of society are taking us there. We've taken, we've taken this religion out of the moment. And this is the part that was new to me. This was a part that I really consider a big gift of thought this week. And I don't, I, I have to apologize ahead of time because I just don't know that I'm going to be able to, to satisfactorily get this point across. He says, there is no freedom in nature. Okay. It is all law. Still the struggle goes on. Nay, the whole of nature from the very sun to the atoms is under law. And even for man, there is no freedom. But we can't believe it. We have been studying laws from the beginning, and yet we cannot, nay, we will not, believe that we are under law. The soul cries over and over, freedom, oh freedom. With the conception of God as a perfectly free being, man cannot rest eternally in this bondage. All right. What he's hinting at here, and, and there's, we're going to look at a lot more verses to kind of bring this out. The death of religion happened the moment that religion was pulled out of the moment. The moment that religion was defined became a, con a concept. When life, when just living, was no longer considered religion, but, but, but considered a separate thing, and from that, religion was pulled out, separated, given an identity, given a set of attributes, and set on a shelf as a set of practices and a set of, of moral, uh, moral structures, laws, and rules, and limitations. 
when we pulled and separated God out of this moment and conceptualized him or her or it or that and gave it all kinds of attributes that were unworthy of that so that our minds could get around it and grasp it and understand it. At that moment, religion died and religion dies. Right now, in this moment, this moment is all that we have. I'm going to jump way forward. This lecture could get shorter by 20 minutes here because this, <laughs> this moment is, is, is all that has ever existed. Can you imagine that for a moment? There has never been anything but this moment, the eternal present. Srinishagadatta says, Behold, the real experiencer is not the mind, but myself, the light in which everything appears. This self is a common factor at the root of all experience, the awareness in which everything happens. The entire field of consciousness is only as a film or a speck in I am. This I amness is being, consciousness, being conscious of consciousness being aware of itself, and it is indescribable because it has no attributes. It is only being myself, and being myself is all that there is. Everything that exists, exists as myself. There is nothing which is different from me. There is no duality, therefore no pain. There are no problems. It is the sphere of love in which everything is perfect. What happens, happens spontaneously without intentions, like digestion or the growth of hair. Realize this and be free from the limitations of the mind. Behold the eternal now. Memory seems to bring things to the present out of the past, but all that happens does happen only in the present alone. It is only in the timeless now that phenomena manifest itself. Thus, time and causality do not apply in reality. I am prior to the world, prior to the body, prior to the mind. I am the sphere in which they appear and disappear. I am the source of them all, the universal power by which the world with its bewildering diversity becomes manifest. Okay. <laughs> what? <laughs> what do you do with that? You sit and you think about it, actually. You sit and you, you contemplate this idea. Because he's saying that this moment is eternal, that there's no past and there's no future. Any reference to this thing that you call the past is a projection of your attachment in the present. Like as soon as you say yesterday, I, it's not about yesterday because you're now talking about it. You're, you've brought yesterday to the present. This is a construct. Yesterday never ex does not have an existence. Only now has that existence. And tomorrow, it's the same way. When you talk about tomorrow, you're talking about nothing. When you, when you get to the point that you're talking about tomorrow, it will be what? It will be the present. It will be this. This, this is not a wedged segment between a bigger past and a bigger future. This is all there is. This is all you will ever have. This is the eternity that you will live as an eternal being, this moment. And this moment is happening within you. And that doesn't mean a mind. That doesn't mean a body. That means consciousness. There's a you that is prior, like he says, that is before the mind. It's using the mind. It's seeing through the mind. It can talk about the mind. It can, it can describe the mind. It can analyze the mind. It's before the body. It's using the body. It's the thing that waves the arms, shakes the head, motivates the, the legs from here to there. That this thing, 
that this, this body and this mind are only a tool that you're using to view an ever-present eternal existence that's indescribable, that is without attribute, that is freedom, that is intelligence, that is love absolute, that everything you are looking at through this lens is, a, is an artifact of your mind, an artifact of believing that you are limited and restricted and separate from that infinite divinity, separate from that God. There's no, uh, there's no way to wrap your mind around this because the mind is the problem. You know, I believe Kant was onto something when he said that, that time, space, and causation, the structures, were structures of mind. That because you're using, you know, if you're using a hammer, the whole world looks like a, a nail. <laughs> you know, its shape and its design affects how you use it. So you use it to bang on everything. You know, you don't use a, you never think of screwing something with a hammer because a hammer is shaped like a hammer. So when you've got it, boom, 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 give it to a little kid, everything becomes something to hammer. So we've been, we're that, we're that little kid and we've been given a mind, a mind that needs past, present, and future. It has causation. It has space. And with that hammer, we have now investigated God. And this is what we've come up with. Everything looks like time-space causation. Everything looks like bodies and limitations and peoples and restrictions and ideas. Because that's the tool that we're using. And this tool looks like it's growing old and it looks like there's going to be an end to it. It looks like there's going to be a death. And it, you know, it, we, the more you become convinced that you are this, the more, the more you suffer, the more fearful this world becomes. You know, the less sure you become of everything. Vivekananda says, as soon as that idea of another entered into the cosmic consciousness, fear was born. You know, that as long as there's a sense of other, there is fear. So at the heart of our existence, the heart of our understanding, using this tool of ours, this mind, is fear. But what, how does that happen? Or, or how do we know this? You know, how do we go beyond this? Vivekananda says that everything, every action of our lives, the most material, meaning the things that are done purely for the body, the grossest as well as the finest, the highest transcendent poetry, the highest ideals of philosophy that we've come with, the most spiritual, all of them, all of that, is tending toward this one ideal, the finding of unity. A man is single, he marries. Apparently it may be a selfish act, but at the same time the impulse, the motive power, is to find that unity. He has children, he has friends, he loves his country, he loves the world, and ends by loving the whole universe. Irresistibly, we are impelled toward that perfection, which consists in finding that unity, killing this little self and making ourselves broader and broader. This is the goal, the end toward which the universe is rushing. Every atom is trying to go and join itself to the next atom. Atom after atoms combine, making huge balls, earths, suns, moons, stars, planets. They, and then in their turn, are trying to rush toward each other. And at last, we know that the whole universe, mental and material, will be fused into one. So it's a matter of investigation, a matter of understanding, a matter of, of consciousness. We know that this is not the whole picture. How do we know that? Not because necessarily of what we're seeing and what we're doing, because that can mean almost anything. We can put boundaries on that and be comfortable in almost any circumstance, in almost any ideal. We know it because of our nature. We know it because there's an impetus in us to be free. We know it because there's an impetus in us to be as big as possible. And Swamiji is saying that if you do pay attention, you can see that, you can realize atoms are rushing to join together. People are trying to be as rich as possible. Why? For that unity, to own it all, <laughs> to have it all, 
You know, our families, we have our families, and then we have our friends. We gather around us, creating a bigger and bigger sphere. You know, we want lots of friends. At work, you know, we want to move up that ladder, be in charge of larger and larger numbers of people. When we finally get in charge of the company, we want that company to be a larger and larger and larger company and swallow up all the competition. Why? To do away with that sense of the other, that, that fear that, 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 that is there. You know, if, I, if they're not defeated, I could be defeated. I could be the one to go. We see these, these, these things in us. We understand that, the, that there's something in us that's giving us an idea that we can't see in this structure of mind. A philosopher uses it as, as proof of their existence. This idea of eternal, it's prominent in us. We think we know what it means. We know, we've never seen anything eternal. We've never seen anything that lasts forever. Where did we get that concept from? Where does that notion come from? The, the most simple psychiatrist, the most, the, the most educated scientist will tell you that this mind is empty when you're born. It's, it's only got stuff that you've seen and associations that you build between them. You know that, that you, know you, see, you see four pianos in a row, now you know what a piano is. You know, you've seen five tires in a row, you know what a tire is. I had a, a, an art teacher in eighth grade, I don't remember her name, but she gave us a homework assignment that was, sounded like it would take nothing more than 15 seconds when she gave it, we were like, oh, cool. She said, I want you to go home and think of a use of a, of a tire, a car tire, that you've never seen before. Come up with something, some use for a car tire that you've never seen anywhere. <laughs> that sounds like it'd be no problem at all. Everything that your mind will present to you is something it's seen before. And the longer you sit there, it may get more and more obscure, but the seed of every one of them is something you've seen before. <laughs> you can't get away from it. It's like that goes on to, to, to build it. Vedantas can take that and then begin to, to suspect the mind in general because the mind is like that about everything. The thought you have this moment is directly the product of the thought that came before it. You cannot, at this moment, have an original thought. You cannot. You cannot have a thought that is not directly related to the previous one. And you think that that is you? You think that that mind, that that thought going through your head is yours? You think that, that this is your being somehow? You can't, you can't even control it. You can't even stop the flow and say, no, we're going to go here. Everything is related. That mind can't do anything that's not bound by that structure of time-space causation. Cannot break free of it. Cannot see anything beyond it. The mind is nothing special. It's an organ, and it secretes thought. It secretes thought like your armpits secrete sweat. You're no more in control of it and no more in charge of it than that. And yet you hold on to it as if it's your truth, as if it's your being. You live to please it. You know, it doesn't like that person, you don't hang out with that person. <laughs> it wants pizza, you're going to go to pizza, go get pizza. And if you can't have pizza, you're going to sulk. <laughs> you're just going to sit there and let it express itself the rest of the night, you know, unless you distract it. It's a slavery beyond slaveries. You know, I heard that word growing up in Christianity all my life, and I thought, slavery? Christianity is a slavery. You're the one telling me I can't do this, and I can't do this, and I can't do this. And I realized you're not free to do something until you're free not to do that something. That's why, that's why Vedanta says, you have to transcend mind. You have to step outside of it. That's the only way to control it. That's the only way that that horse can be put under its harness. When you break that identity, and you stop being ruled by the sense of I that you've attached to these things. All the things in the mind, all the things in the senses, they have no existence in and of themselves. They have no power over you at all. But that's not our experience. Why? Because of attachment. I is like a giant battery, this sense of I that exists in you. It's a giant battery. And as soon as it touches something, that thing has a power. That thing has an existence. That thing has an influence over you. Or not necessarily over you. It just has an influence, whatever, whatever it has by its assumed nature. And what happens when you're deeply attached to something is that you forget that it's you that's touching it. 
and giving it that power. And you give it a separate identity, like your mind. Your mind says, you're going to have... Your, uh, uh, <laughs> I was just going to go there, but I'm afraid to go there. I'll, I'll say it. Your mind says, I want to have sex tonight. And boom, you try and control it because you're whatever reasons. You, you, you think it's good for your spiritual life and you, you're going to try and control that or whatnot. You're tired of it. Whatever your motivations are, you try. And you're like that. And you, it becomes this huge battle. You're battling with something that doesn't have anything in and of itself. It's all your sense of I that, that has given that all of the power that it has. If you let go of that attachment, if you, if you, if you just say, stop the argument or realize you're arguing with nothing in your mind, that, that influence that's saying, go do it, go do it. It's nothing but a whole load of memories and a whole load of, of impetus that's come before that you're putting on the present moment and, and letting you define or defining that moment for you, telling you what it's like, telling you what the experience of this moment is. You know, but this moment is fresh. This moment is clear. This moment is open. It's unpolluted by mind. It's free. This moment is yours to create anything that you want to create. And anything that you do create is created in this moment alone. No one ever created anything outside of the moment. And therein lies our problem with religion. You see, religion can only be present in the moment. Religion as it was meant to be practiced can only be present now here in this moment. As soon as you take it out of this moment and put it on the shelf and try and talk about it, it has become a thing of calcification. It's become stuck. It's become defined. It's become small. And eventually you'll be pricked by its limitations. This moment, religion was meant to be this. This experience of being alive. This experience of, of manifesting divinity manifesting that inner nature of love that comes out of you, that desire, that oneness, that infinite freedom to not be stuck, to not be small, to be not defined, to not be told, to not be controlled, but to be ever free and ever pure. This moment is that. It's uncolored unless you drag your concepts of mind into the middle of it, unless you take that battery of, of the lower eye and attach it and say, this is me. This defines me. This is what I am, you know. And use that understanding, use that knowledge to let go of the chain. You know that great poem. I've been using this a lot lately. I think there's a big message in it for me. Yours is the hand that holds the chain that binds you down. Let go your hold, sannyasin bowl. Say om tatsat om, Vivekananda's poem the about the sannyasin. Yours is the hand that insists that it's difficult to, to say no. Yours is the hand that says you have to have that pizza. Yours is the hand that says I can't lose this weight. Yours is the hand that says I'm not gonna study, I'm gonna sleep instead. Yours is the hand that says I can't get up right now, I, I've gotta hit that snooze alarm one more time. You don't have to. What you're doing is, is allowing yesterday's Dragging yesterday's influence, dragging memories into the present, dragging attachments into the present, and submitting to them. Forfeiting your freedom, forfeiting your control, forfeiting your infinite nature, being controlled by that thing in your mind. You don't have to. That's why Takura, that's why all the sages have said this process of realization doesn't have to be a long one, doesn't have to be multiple lifetimes, doesn't take X number of hours of meditation, doesn't take X number of tries. It's yours now. If you're aware of what you're holding on to and can just be free, let the moment define itself. Not the mind, not your attachments, not your projections, not your ideas, not your conceptions. What is? Let it be what it is. That's that magic of that great statement, another one that I've been using a lot lately, another great lesson for me. Vivekananda says, stop seeking God, see God. Where are you gonna see God? 
in the moment. You've never seen anything else. The only reason you think that you've seen anything else is because you've given it numerous names and numerous forms. My Hafiz says in his poem, go out and greet yourself today in your thousand other forms. That sense of unity, that knowledge that there is no distinction. Every soul, imagined soul that's separate from you is motivated by the same inner self that drives you. Everything wants love. Everything wants security. Everything wants that oneness. Everything appreciates beauty. It's prior to their mind, prior to their body. It is that which you share with them utterly and completely. And if you realize that, like Sri Nishagadatta did apparently, and you read his book, I Am That, I've also mentioned that many times, you can read things like this, talk to somebody who has had, who lives in this space, who lives in a world where he understands the nature of things. And here, when he says something like, behold, the real experiencer is not the mind. It's not your body and not your mind, but yourself, the light in which everything happens. You know, just, uh, just about a week ago, uh, Sam gave me uh, one of these Google cardboard VR, virtual reality things that you stick your phone into and you, it's like an old viewfinder. Remember the, remember those viewfinders where you could put the little round disks of slides in them and they show you a world in 3D? This is that on steroids. This is a, <laughs> you should get one. I don't know where he got it, but I, I, get, these, I get the idea that they're either free or not expensive and you, you just put an app on a standard uh, smartphone and you stick the smartphone in it. And what it is, is it, it puts a, a 3D world in front of you. But unlike the VR, or the, unlike the viewfinder, you can turn around physically. I'm not talking about controlling joysticks or anything. I'm talking about turning your head. And you see, like, like this room, as you turn your head, you see what's all around you. And you can look up, and you can look down, you can look all around. You're in that space. I mean, you know, it's, it's the cardboard version of it, so don't be overly impressed by it. But you're in that space. And everything is happening within that box. And it's very strange. Because even though, especially on my phone, there's, it's a little grainy, you know, you can tell that you're looking at something, there's not high resolution there. I still was bumping into walls in my own room. <laughs> you know, I was, it was still, I would watch, because it, it could also be video, you're not just in a static environment, it can actually, it's actually like, like one of the scenes is walking through New York, and uh, you're walking through New York and you're actually moving out of people's way while you're <laughs> going along, and then being introduced to your closet door, which wasn't in the view but how easy it is to fool the mind. You know, how, 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 how easy it is to be where you're not. You know, that, that this mind is not, I mean, it's a pretty cool tool, there's no doubt. We've certainly done a lot with it. Look at the world around us. We've messed up a lot with it. But we shouldn't be amazed when the sages say that this world is just an interpolation of your mind, that it's not what you're seeing. It's not what's really going on. We shouldn't be surprised and think that's ridiculous. That, that, that's, that's an absurd uh, uh, suggestion. Because you put one of these little headsets on and even like I said, in this low resolution thing, you put that thing on, you start looking around, you know, people are walking toward you and you're moving out of the way for them. A low resolution you know, thing, it's, it's just, it's crazy. It's really, it's really something. And I started thinking about that in light of what he's saying here. He says, you know, that, that the real experiencer is not the mind, but myself. The light in which everything appears, self is the common factor at the root of all experience. Behold the eternal now. You know, watch your mind bring past in through memory. But it's only bringing memory into the present. It's not taking anything from the past. It's just everything is done in the present. Think about that. I can't make you understand that. I can't make myself understand that. But sit and understand that there is only the present. Everything outside of the present is your imagination. You have created that concept for yourself. You have built your life on it. You're making your decisions about life on it. You're making your plans for this imaginary tomorrow on it. You're doing, it's just a way of seeing this reality. And it's a way that prohibits you from seeing it as it is. It's a way that gives you great deals of fear and stress and anger and hurt and pain. 
There is a better way to understand this, and that is to understand that you're standing in your room with a box attached to your head. <laughs> that it's imaginary, that it's not real. It, it does not command you. It's a set of limitations and restrictions for your play, for your play. Accepting for your infinite spirit, everything else is changing. There is a whirl of change. Permanence is nowhere except in yourself. There is the infinite joy, unchanging. Meditation is the gate that opens that to us. Prayers, ceremonials, and all these other forms of worship are simply kindergartens for this type of meditation. You pray and you offer something. A certain theory existed that everything raised one's spiritual power. The use of certain words, flowers, images, temples, ceremonials are like the waving of lights. They bring to mind that attitude, but the attitude is always in the human soul, nowhere else. People are doing it, but they are doing, without, doing it without knowing. Do it knowingly. That is the power of meditation. See what happens is when you take all of these things, these images, these temples, these ideas, these, these inspirations, when you pull them out of the moment and you set them and give them a separate reality, they lose their magic. Religion was not, it was not meant to happen in a temple. Your realization of God was not meant to happen in front of a statue. It was meant to be who you are. It was meant to be from the very beginning. You were meant to never have lost it, to have understood it eternally, to have always known it. And the odd thing is, this was another thing, that a kind of a sub-theory. I, I guess there's axioms and there's theories and whatever. My science is long ago. But there's a sub-theory or a subset of thoughts to this. You know, this idea I mentioned in the kitchen to some friends last night we have this idea, I have this idea, maybe you don't, I have this idea that we're all gonna get our own little realization. You know, that we're all gonna, oh, I'm going to be realized, I'm gonna have my own realization experience one day. And I've, I've always taken that as being, as being true, and I thought, well, cool, that's gonna be cool. But it's, it's counterintuitive to the truth that the, that the sages are saying here. I've already had a million realizations because what is that realization? The realization is that I'm one with all that is, that there's never been many, that there's one infinite expression of divine love played out and reflected back in millions of different colors that I've called people and places and things and stories and lifetimes. But I'm just realizing over and over and over and over and over again that I'm sitting there as that being in that infinite bliss of consciously being aware of the conscious, of consciousness itself, this ever-present, ever-unfolding, ever-popping bubbles of bliss, just constant, constant, constant. Perhaps every one of those bubbles was what I thought I was for a moment, briefly, somewhere, sometime. But there's only one realization. There's no me, in this sense, to have that realization. And Swamiji says that everything in this world, every joy that you've ever experienced, everything that has ever made you laugh, everything that has made you cry out in pleasure, everything that you've ever loved is just a glimmer, a reflection of that infinite self which is in you. The source of that which you love most is in you. There's this, there's this notion, you know, that... that uh, <laughs> You know, when, you, when you're dating somebody, or married to somebody, hopefully, hopefully actually, you, you think they're the most wonderful, you chose them. You chose them because they were the most marvelous person uh, that you had met, or, you know, or, or of course, there are different cultures, <laughs> you were assigned them. But, <laughs> <laughs> can't say anything about that. But uh, let's go with Disney for a moment. <laughs> you know, in Disney, there's this ideal. There's this ideal. It's like the most beautiful person that you've, that you've ever met. And you find them beautiful. You know, you find them wonderful. Like every, like, let's go to children. That's more universal. Every, I, you know, I have several friends that have gotten married over the years, and I haven't and uh, won't. But I'm following their lives through email. 
I tell you without exception that all of them are parents of geniuses. You won't believe she's already counting to 20 and she's not even two, you know? You won't believe she is like as tall as a four-year-old. It's unbelievable, she's amazing. Every single parent talks that way. Now, if that was true, <laughs> if that was true, we would live in a world of geniuses, a world of big, strong, healthy people who are doing phenomenal things way beyond their capability at every moment of the day. But it's not. Why? Because all of that love of what they're doing, all of that pride in who they are and what they are is coming from inside the parent. That's why when we look at her, his little girl, we're going to be like, So this one's named Lisa. <laughs> you know, it's like, okay. She's not hideous. <laughs> you know, like that. You know, the beauty of your wife is because of that love in you that's being reflected back to you. Otherwise, everybody else would think that you had the most beautiful wife. And there might be a couple of others, but certainly it's not going to be the whole room, you know. It's certainly not going to be the whole room. But this notion, this notion that, that things out there have these qualities, that it's things out there that are giving us value, these things out there that are making us happy, these things out there that are giving us pleasure. Vivekananda says, no, that's what's enslaving you. That's what's getting you stuck. That love is available in you all the time. Unreflected, it doesn't have to be reflected. It just happens to be reflected in that person for whatever reason. That's the magic of, of Maya, the magic of this life, you know, that these reflections happen. But, uh, but to understand that that love, that, 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 that moment of perfect love or the nearest thing to perfect love that you've experienced to date in your life was in you already. You didn't need that person to give it to you. Because if it existed in that person, everybody around that person would be feeling that, would be seeing that, would be experiencing that. It's not in that person. Just like even, even with Takur, you know, even with this, an avatar, someone like Jesus. You know, nowadays there's thousands, millions of people that worship Jesus, millions of people that worship Ramakrishna, but not everybody. There were people that went to, to the Dakshineshwar temple for the day and saw a crazy man saw a man that was insane, thought nothing more of him, you know, wrote him off as some peasant freak, <laughs> you know. If it was in Takur, if it was in Jesus, everybody would have seen it. It's in you. It's in you. And there are a myriad of things, unique things, that reflect that back to you. But in the end of the, at the end of the day, it's in you, and the more that you understand that, the more that you know that, you can choose to see that reflected in everyone because you recognize it when you look at them. You recognize that source of love. You see that first when you talk to a person. That's religion. That's where religion happens. The moment you see love in someone else first, the moment you understand that that framework of existence, that, that, that oneness exists as you look through this, this tool into that tool and feel, feel that leap of the heart in there, that sweetness of identity, that gladness of seeing, that is religion. That is understanding. And you can't take that out of the moment. You can never show that to somebody. You can't define that in a book. You can't create rules to experience that. It belongs now. It belongs in the moment that you are living. That is where your religion is. That's where beautiful things are. That's where God is. When you see that, do you believe in God? What is there to believe in? It is all that you have ever seen. It is all that you have ever experienced. It is that experience itself, consciousness being aware of consciousness, consciousness being conscious of consciousness, is that joy. We have to apply the same methods of investigation. Do we have to apply the same methods of investigation which we apply to science and knowledge outside? 
Does this have to be applied to the science of religion? Vivekananda asks. He says, in my opinion, this must be so. I'm also in the opinion that the sooner it is done, the better. If a religion is destroyed by such an investigation, it, is then all the time, it has then been all the time useless, unworthy superstition. And the sooner a religion like that goes, the better, he says. So investigate, open up, be aware, start questioning the assumptions that you're making. That's your religion. Question the assumptions. Is this true? Is this real? What am I actually seeing? Take that and begin to look. Decidedly, when we have to admit that there is something more universal than books, something higher than all the ethical codes in the world, something which can judge between the strength of inspirations of different nations, whether we declare it boldly, clearly, or not, it is, a, it is evident that here we must appeal to reason. So reason, you know, reason can, in the scriptures, reason can take you to an edge, yes, but that's an edge way beyond where most of us are. It shouldn't be dropped off. You don't have to become a non-logical, non-reasonable person in your, in your quest for the divine. Quite the contrary. It is a necessary tool for knowing God. It is a necessary tool for finding your divine nature, your inner self. So don't shrink back from that. Use that religion. But understand, it is not the end all. It will not take you to the final source. It will take you to the chasm where you will stand there and go, I have no tool to process that. I can't go beyond that point. I actually, you know, I, I mentioned uh, this before too, that, uh, you know, in physics, especially these days, like quantum physics, I'm not going to go into it deeply, but I mean, they're already, the, I read a New York Times article about a month ago where they're already realizing that they don't have the tools to investigate beyond some of, the, some of the axioms that are being presented in, in quantum physics right now, that they are realizing the standard laboratory won't work, that, these are, that, that they're at the point of having to experiment thought in thought, where thought affects the experiment. And they're saying, how do you build experiments where the experiment itself is going to affect what you're looking at? So that's why the, the, the scriptures say, use it. We had to use it to get to that point. But no, it's not going to take you all the way. Know that logic, as happy as Spock was, is not going to fulfill your life, is not going to make you what you want to be, that all these things are limited. Your highest realization is transcendent. You will realize at some point, oh my god, this mind is just a cardboard box that I've been holding to my eyes for my own pleasure and fun all this time. All the stories that I saw through it, all the buildings I looked at, all the helicopter rides I took, all the roller coasters I was on that thrilled me were just a box attached to eyes for my own play, my own fun. That's the transcendental realization. To realize God is the goal of life. While aiming his arrow at the mark, Arjuna said, I see only the eye of the bird and nothing else, not the kings, not the trees, not even the bird itself. To realize God, this quest, is the goal of your life. It's what your life is about. Is that a small thing? It's bigger than many lives. Is it a boring thing? Not if you're doing it right. Is it an exhausting thing? Not if you're touching anything. It's a beautiful quest that's worthy of your life, worthy of your being. It's the only thing that will make you more valuable as an old man or an old woman. It's the only thing that will make you worth coming to visit in the old folks' home when the days are closing. It's the only thing that will give you the pleasure and the joy of being once your body has melted away, your muscles have given up, your bones have withered, your hair's fallen out, and you become nothing but a beautiful old person. What you've done with this inner life to the degree that you've realized your nature will be the degree to which you see love in the world around you, will be the degree to which you can be thrilled without a single bit of, 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 you know, touching or 
needing or grasping or holding. Like Swami Asitananda that I mention all the time, to be able to sit in a room unable to move, unable to walk, and to smile, a beaming, happy smile, even when nobody was watching. This is the goal of life. This is religion. It exists in the moment. If you're not thinking about it in the moment, if you're not investigating in the moment, you're lost in your mind. You're taking a gamble. Be aware. Be aware of your nature. Takwar sang a wonderful song. As is a man's meditation, so is his feeling of love. As is a man's feeling of love, so is his gain, and faith is the root of all. If in the nectar lake of mother's Kali's feet my mind remains immersed, of little use are worship, oblations, or sacrifice. This eternal dance with the divine is the goal of religion. It's the byproduct of understanding, of knowing. It's eternal and it is beautiful. Hafiz, the sky is a suspended blue ocean. The stars are the fish that swim. The planets are the white whales I sometimes hitch a ride on. And the sun and all light have forever fused themselves into my heart and upon my skin. There is only one rule in this wild playground. For every sign Hafiz has ever seen reads the same. They all say, have fun, my dear. My dear, have fun in the beloved's divine game. Oh, in the beloved's most wonderful game. That is religion.